Good morning. All right, the title of the sermon. Perhaps you can guess it. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. This is our final sermon from the book of Exodus today. Sorry, Exodus. My brain's in Exodus. We're done with Exodus. From the book of Revelation. It's our final sermon in the book of Revelation. We began our journey last year, around May, uh, and now we will finish it. In the 8th century, there's a man by the name of Homer, and he wrote famous books, one of which is known as the Odyssey. Perhaps you've heard of it. In Homer's Odyssey, it's a poem about the king of Ithaca. His name, the king, is Odysseus. Odysseus is trying to return home after the Trojan Wars with the city of Troy. The wars themselves between Greek, the Greece cities, and Troy lasted 10 years. It should have been a, a boat trip home that only lasted a matter of weeks, but it ended up being 10 years due to the interference of the various gods that they worshipped. And so, Odysseus finds himself estranged from his wife, Penelope, from his son and his throne in Ithaca for a total of 20 years, 20 years, with no, with no internet, no, no Facebook or social media messages or text messages, 20 years away, and the story climaxes as Odysseus finally returns home to his wife Penelope, who has fought off with her son many suitors, and those who would try to take the throne in Odysseus' absence, and they are together and live happily ever after. It's a short version. And so it is with the true story of the Scriptures and the end of all things. The picture from Revelation is that history will end with the return of the king who comes for his bride and judges those who have rejected him and have persecuted his people. He will redeem the people of God and establish his kingdom fully and finally, and we shall forever reign with him. Amen. That is the story of Revelation and really where we end today. Before we get into it, perhaps an overview and a recap of where we've come from, starting in Revelation chapter 1. The first section, there are seven main movements of the book of Revelation. Seven has been an important number throughout, and so it shouldn't surprise us that there are seven main movements. Chapters 1 through 3 include the prologue and the first major section, which is Jesus among his seven lampstands or churches, the seven letters to the seven churches. Chapter 4 to chapter 8, verse 5, shows us a heavenly throne room where we blast off and we are in the courts of heaven and we see a radiant view of God on his throne and a sealed scroll. How many seals are there? Seven. A seven-sealed scroll. And one by one, the seals are 
opened by the Lamb who was slain, none other than Jesus. Then we go to chapter 8, verse 6 through 1119, and we have a series of trumpet judgments. How many are there? Seven. Seven trumpets. A series of trumpet judgments themselves, they are modeled after the fall of Jericho. There is a small interlude in chapters 10 through 11, where we have a vision of an angel and a little scroll, and then the two witnesses. The fourth movement comes in chapter 12, verse 1, through chapter 14, verse 20, with seven visions, where, where John kind of pops open the hood of reality and shows us what's, what's going on under the hood, in the, the background of all that we see and experience. And what we find is there is this conflict between the dragon and his beasts and the lamb and his followers, and they clash. The next movement, we'll see each of these, the two beasts and the dragon, defeated in reverse order. Chapter 15, 1 begins that through 16, 21, where we have the, the seven bowls of God's wrath modeled after the Exodus plagues. And then the sixth movement, chapter 17, verse 1 to 19, verse 10, we see the fall of Babylon, the, the prostitute, the harlot riding on the beast. And this section really zooms in on the last two bowls, bowl six and bowl seven, where we get a, a slow motion highlight reel, play by play of the final end. And then the seventh movement where we come today in the epilogue. Chapter 19, verse 11 through 22, verse 21. Jesus returns, he redeems his people. And he recreates or renovates, depending on how you take that, the new heavens and the new earth. So that's where we've come from. We've gotten all of it. And what, what I have suggested is, is John is written in cycles, circles, so to speak. That really creates, when you put it all together, an upward spiral. That He starts with the first century audience, the seven letters to the seven churches. He starts with the first century audience and increasingly and progressively draws our hearts, draws our minds to the end. And so now we're at the end of the book and we are full on in the future, the end of all things. So let's pray. And with this very brief recap, we'll get in and I'll start to show my cards at last. Father in heaven, Thank you for your word. It is truly beautiful. It is hope-filled. It is necessary for our salvation. It is crucial for our sanctification. And we need it now just as much as the day we first believed. Father, I would imagine there are some in here who desperately need an encouraging word from you. I pray that you would grant that as we walk through this passage on the end. I pray that all of us would see how practical the end truly is, that we might leave here asking, how should I live as a result of these things? And Father, I do pray for those 
who are sitting under the preaching of your gospel and our other sister churches, namely Lahaina Baptist. Thank you for Pastor Jay and Joy Wright and for their ministry. Would you bless the preaching of your word to the west side of the island? Would you draw many to faith there? Would you multiply their efforts, multiply servants who will come alongside them and bear their burden? Would you be with the elders and the deacons? Would you grant them a supernatural unity and a singularity of mind to be on mission as you have called them to do? And would you keep them from all sin? Would you not lead them into temptation, we pray? And now, Father, guide us now into your truth by the power of your Spirit for the glory of your name. Amen. All right. Very first sermon on Revelation. We called it the intro to Revelation. Real fancy. But uh, I called it the ABCs of Revelation. And so uh, as Revelation begins where the Bible uh, ends, where the Bible begins, so too will my sermon. So your points will have ABC. So A, approach. I gave you four approaches in that first sermon, four main approaches that people take to Revelation, to studying the book of Revelation. I told you at that time I wasn't going to tell you what approach we were taking, and I would play my cards close to the chest. And you had to discern, as the series unfolded, what approach we were taking. I told you I would tell you at the end, so I will make good of my word. The four approaches, if you weren't there for that sermon, the first approach is the futurist approach. That sees most of Revelation, starting in chapter 4, as occurring in the future. The second approach is the preterist approach. It's the opposite of that. They would see most of Revelation occurring in the past, almost entirely in the past. The third approach would be the idealist approach which wouldn't be concerned about the future or the past, but says Revelation is a book of principles applicable to all believers at all times. The fourth approach is a historicist approach. Those who hold this approach would say, would wonder, would see the book of Revelation as an outline of church history and ask, where are we at now in the book of Revelation? These are the four main approaches. I dropped an Easter egg in those beginning sermons for the discerning ear. And I said they were more like a spectrum, camps, that there's not a hard, sometimes you'll find a a modified preterist or a modified futurist. The Easter egg was when I said there was value in all of those perspectives and error in holding to any of them too tightly. So I have taken, some of you are going to be like, man, I've taken the eclectic approach, which means a mixed bag. Because some of you have been like, ooh, I think he's preterist, because he said, well, this is really like looking at the past. Some of these things are done. And others have said, well, no, that sounds more idealist at times, because he's really talking about principles and and things that are applicable for all people. And others have said, well, there's this futurist bent, because he's he's still looking to the future, especially here at the end. And then others it's historicist because he's referring to Rome and actual people and characters in the history of the church and our world. And, and so which is it? And it's really all of them. 
The futurist approach is to be commended because it does see Revelation as an unsealing of God's purposes and plans, that we see the end, the plan, the goal, the finale, his purpose culminating. The preterist approach is to be commended for its focus on the first audience, the original hearers of the entirety of the letter, not just the first three chapters. The idealist approach accurately labels and sees that there are principles here for all people, all believers at all times. And the historicist approach is to be commended for its effort to find where are we here? Because this, if this is applicable, then what is God doing? Where are we at? But yet to go to the extreme of any one of those would land us into error. A futurist, a strictly futurist approach would fail to see the application of chapters 4 through 22 to all believers at all times. A strictly preterist approach would fail to see how God's plan is meant to give hope and breed faithfulness amidst great discouragement. The idealist approach fails to hear the prophetic nature of the writing to call a people, a distinct people, to live holy, pure lives in this present age. And the historicist approach fails, namely, because it tries to be too specific in asking where are we and misses the broader brushstrokes. And so we have taken the eclectic approach, and it has been fun to see you try and wrestle with where are we, what approach are you taking week in and week out. Now, why did I give you those four if I was going to tell you it was a mixture of all of them? One way to see it, would be like a Venn diagram. You know what a Venn diagram is? Circles, and they normally overlap. In the overlapping spot, you can learn things about. So if you were to take the, a Venn diagram of those four approaches, and you know, futurist, preterist, idealist, historicist, that overlapping portion in the middle would be the approach we have tried to take. And I gave you those four. One, I wanted to dial you in to what was going on. Two, I wanted you to build a framework, a framework to help you understand and wade through any conversation on Revelation you ever have in the future so that you can understand why is, why is this person saying Revelation's like this and they're, they're talking about it like this or this person seems to say something totally contradictory and it's really because these different approaches are underpinning all of those conversations often without the persons having the conversation even aware of those approaches and how they're informing their thoughts and beliefs. And so, I hope that our time together has given you that. Uh, there are other, other stances, other positions. Some of you maybe are like, I, I like that. Others are maybe like, oh, I'm going to stay with my R.C. Sproul, modified preterist. Cool. Maybe others uh, I'm, I'm going to stick with my idealist approach or my futurist approach after all of it. Nonetheless, whatever you are at the end of this, I hope you have an appreciation for how others come to their conclusions from the scriptures and what is often very hard to wade through with clarity. That's number one, approach. Number two, a beautiful picture. A beautiful picture 
So last, the first sermon was the background, but this time we get the beautiful picture because we've got the background, we've got the pieces, and it all comes together in chapter 21 and 22. And here we just have the, the cherry on top, and, and I just love this passage. It, it brings together redemptive threads from the whole Bible, from the entire Bible. They all just start to come together and pull together in incredible fashion. Verse 1, let's read it. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And so you start to see these redemptive threads originally brought about in Genesis, now tied together in Revelation. We read first about the river of the water of life. It's, it's just, it says bright as crystal. You can see this, right? Like there's a river. He showed me a river the water of life, bright as crystal. You just think, man, you go to Waimea Bay, just very clear. You go anywhere out here to Molokini, sometimes the water is just so clear and bright, deep blue, and it's just, it's beautiful. The whole scene here is this vibrant fullness of life that flows as a result of living in perfect union and perfect fellowship with God. The picture itself comes from Ezekiel 47, the end times temple that Ezekiel sees at a distance. He sees a river flowing from the temple that gives life everywhere it goes. Now, John sees that same thing realized in the person of God and of Christ, who chapter 21, verse 22 says, they are the temple. There is no temple because God and the Lamb are the temple. And from this temple flows a river of life. It's also hard not to hear John's gospel here, isn't it? Can you hear John's gospel? You remember it? John chapter 7, verse 37. Jesus is at the Feast of Booths, or Feast of Tabernacles. On the last day, it says, John's gospel, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this, John says, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. You hear that? It's hard not to hear when he says, and I saw a river brightest crystal, the water of life, the river of life just flowing. It's hard not to hear John's gospel in the background. And if that's the case, then this is a very Trinitarian scene. To see that, listen again. What did, what did John say, John chapter 7, say that this water of life depicted the Holy Spirit? 
And now get this scene here. Chapter 22, verse 1. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Very Trinitarian picture. The life-generating power of the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, giving life and light to all. So we see this river, and then we see another familiar item or symbol, don't we? On either side of the river is what? The tree of life. When was the last time you saw that tree of life? You see this in the book of Genesis. There's trees in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the tree of life. The last time we saw the tree of life was when we were banned. You remember Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they were kicked out of Eden, and, and an angel at the east end of Eden, an angel was set to guard a cherubim with a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. What we saw when we were banned now in Revelation 22 is brought back in fullness. The cherubim with a flaming sword is replaced with abundant provision for all who desire to partake with abundant healing. Verse 3 says, no longer will there be anything accursed. When did the curse begin? Genesis chapter 3, where God cursed the man. He cursed the woman. He cursed the ground. He cursed the serpent. And now in Revelation 22, nothing's accursed. The curse is lifted. The pain that we have, the suffering we endure, now will be gone forever. It's hard to imagine what this will be like, won't it? We can't even conceive of a world without sin, can we? Without the pain of uh, and taint and darkness that sin brings into it. It's just mind-boggling to us. We, we truly cannot imagine it because it's all we've ever known, living under the shadow of death. Sometimes people wonder, I've wondered this, what, what will it be like with my wife in heaven? You ever wonder that? Anybody ever ask that? What's it going to be like with my spouse in heaven? Because the Bible says there's no marrying or giving in marriage, and, and yet here we are. Am I going to know you? Or are we going to be like a thing? Or are we not going to be like a thing? Is it going to be like that awkward friend passing? Like, what's up? Like, you know, what, what's it going to be like? I want you to think about the person you love most in this life. Think about it. who do you Who do you love most? Maybe it's not a spouse. Maybe it's a parent or a sibling. Maybe it's a child. Think about the person that you are the closest to in this life. Now, how much do you love that person? Would you not die for them? Now, let me ask you, how often do you think of that person and just want to... What's the matter with you? <laughs> Can't you do that? Right, right? As much as you love them, like, I'm going to kill you too, right? Like, some days. You see? Even our closest relationship here, even our closest friendship or whatever that is, is tainted by what? By sin. 
is tainted by sin. But friends, in heaven, where there is no sin, the union and closeness of intimacy that we will have with all of God's people is unimaginably, unimaginably better than even our closest union here with sin. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? It's hard to even describe and think what that would be like. My, the base level in heaven without sin will be infinitely more richer than the closest union here with sin. It's mind-blowing. The best part of heaven isn't our relationship with others, though, is it? The best part of heaven is in verse 4. It's our relationship with God. Verse 4 says, they will see his face. And their na- his name will be on their foreheads. You remember the pinnacle of Moses' life? Remember that the climactic experience of the life of Moses is what? He asked God one thing, show me your glory. And he just saw the, the back of God and his face is like radiating and shining and he's transformed. They will see his face. We will see his very face forever, and his name will be on their foreheads. Now you think, that's kind of weird. Why is his name going to be on my forehead? What, what is that about? I could do a seeing his face, but do I really have to have somebody's name on my forehead? And again, this just goes back to the Old Testament. It's we missed the, the imagery, the picture, because we, we don't really know the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, the high priest, the garments of the priest, they had the name of God written. They would wear it on a turban that would, they would wear on their head when they would serve God. And the picture here is that not only will the high priest have this access to the holy of holies all of us will get the access to god all the time forever and ever in his presence amen what a beautiful picture what a beautiful picture we all get all access passes to god praise god and we find the curse that began in eden gives way to the blessing that began with Aaron in Numbers chapter 6. You know this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The curse gives way to the blessing where the people of God are with God by his grace, for his glory, forever and ever. Whew, there's so much here. Let me speed up and give you a few of the other threads that are laced together. We see the promise of land. If you remember Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, the Abrahamic covenant where God says, look out as far as you can see, wherever your foot has walked, as far as your eye can see, this land is going to be yours. The promise of land that really began with the Garden of Eden is now expanding and heightened to where it's all of the earth, the new heavens and the new earth are encompassed with the glory of God. What Adam failed to do, Jesus, the second Adam, succeeded in doing. We see the seed. 
God told Abraham, look at the stars, number them if you're able to. Your offspring is going to be like that. We see the promise of the seed. The seed of Abraham, truly, all the nations are blessed in Christ. You remember the creation mandate? Genesis chapter 1, he told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That creation mandate was reissued in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You know it. It's called the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Why? Because Christ was completing, was picking up, and would finish what Adam failed to do. And now we see in Revelation 21 and 22, the world is full of image bearers of God, of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The seed of Abraham truly will outnumber the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore. We see the temple, the tabernacle, the temple that would later be God's dwelling in the midst of his people. Now in the new heavens and the new earth, there is no temple because God is in the midst of his people and he is among them and with them. We see the covenant. Oh, you remember the Old Testament? That word testament means covenant. Old Testament, New Testament, New Covenant. The glories of the New Covenant come to full fruition as the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep now leads us to still waters and finally and eternally brings rest to our our souls. We see the the final Sabbath rests, the unending jubilee, the 70 weeks of Daniel, I would suggest, is not about God's timeline or the 69th week and the break before the 70th week. The 70 weeks of Daniel is to show Daniel that unending rest is coming in Christ, and now we have our unending jubilee. Amen and amen. Jesus wins. That's the picture. Jesus wins. It's a beautiful picture. And the book ends with exhortation. Point number three. Conquer until he comes. A is approach. B is this beautiful picture. And C, conquer until he comes. The book closes with a promise of blessing and cursing. We've had several blessings in Revelation. Do you know how many we've had? I'll let you guess. Give you one guess. How many blessings are in the book of Revelation? Yeah, 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 144,000. No, no. That was a good guess. Uh, Seven, seven. Much easier to remember. Seven. There are seven blessings in the book of Revelation. John likes sevens because there are seven I am statements in his gospel as well. I am the living water. I am the door. I am, right? I'm the vine. You're the branches. There are seven. John likes sevens. Revelation 1-3. I'm not going to read them all. just going to read the first one and the last two in this chapter. Revelation 1-3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. 
The second blessing comes in chapter 14, verse 13. The third comes in chapter 16, verse 15. The fourth comes in chapter 19, verse 9. The fifth comes in chapter 20, verse 6. The sixth and seventh are in chapter 22, verse 7 and verse 14, respectively. Here's what they say, 22, verse 7. Don't you think about this? When you think blessed, think happy, right? I'm happy. These are blessings. These are things, okay, if I hear this, if I do this, I will be happy. And I think all of us in here, that's what we want, don't we? We want to be happy. I want to be happy. I don't like it when I'm in pain or when I'm suffering or unhappy. I want to be happy the way of life that Jesus promises. Revelation 20, verse 7. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Blessed, verse 14, are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. And so throughout the theme, Revelation opens and closes with a promise of blessing to those who hear this prophecy and do what? Keep it. Sounds a lot like our fighter verse, doesn't it? Be doers of the word and not hearers only. We find blessings and warnings. Warnings are modeled after Deuteronomy chapter 4, the covenant curses. Basically, he says, don't add or take away from the word of God. Don't add to these things, or I'm going to add the plagues written in the book to you. Don't take away from them, or I'm going to take away the share, your share, in the tree of life. What's this really about? John is really giving his hearers a warning against what is the oldest trick of Satan. He's giving his hearers a warning against Satan's oldest tactic. Do you remember what it was? Did God really say? He's warning his hearers one last time, be on guard. Don't twist the word of God, don't add to it, don't take it away, don't multiply it, don't divide it. Be on guard, because Satan still whispers in our ears. I'm going to give you ten things that Satan whispers in the ears of believers today. Did God really say that his word alone is sufficient for our salvation and spiritual livelihood? Did God really say he created the earth in six literal days? Did God really say homosexual practices and desires are wrong? Did God really say sexual immorality is wrong, or is that just old-fashioned? Did God really say I need to take radical measures against my sin? Did God really say I need to be ready for him to come at any minute. Hasn't it been so long? Did God really say he doesn't hear the prayers of men who are harsh with their wives or abuse them or belittle them? Did God really say substance abuse is sinful? Did God really say I have to love my enemies and pray for them and seek to bless them? Did God really say, I need to walk in truthhood and light? 
And did God really say, extra credit, 11, he will forgive all who turn from any sin, including me and including you? Did God really say all of those things? Because those are all the things we doubt often, don't we, in our culture? I could give more. Perhaps I should give 12 just to round it out in a very apocalyptic fashion. Did God really say Pastor Randy has to preach an hour every time? (laughs) Yes. There's blessings and there's warnings. Don't add to or take away from God's word. Let it stand as it is. The book closes by impressing on us the quickness or nearness of his coming, doesn't it? Five times, five times in this brief section, we hear that Jesus is coming soon or the time is near. Verse 6, verse 7, verse 10, verse 12, verse 20, all have, I am coming soon. The time is near. I'm coming soon. And now this is almost how many years ago? How many years has it been? Almost 2,000 years since Jesus said he was coming again. Is he really? Can, can we really straight-faced say that that was soon? It's all a matter of perspective, isn't it? We've read that a thousand years is like a day. And a day is like a thousand years. From, from God's vantage point, it's been two days. Two days. And we're like, it's been so long, is he really coming? It's been two days. So let me ask you, are you ready? One of the most common fears that people have is the fear of being left out. We even have a term for it. It's called FOMO. It's the fear of missing out. To be on the outside, wanting to come in, but, but unable to come or to miss out on some experience. Now, uh, I have a child, and all of my children have gone through this stage, and it's, it's strange to me because we don't play or joke with them about this, but uh, they go through this stage of not wanting to be left behind. Mommy, Daddy, don't leave me. Don't, don't leave me. We're, we're, you know, we're getting ready to go. They're doing something. Don't, don't leave me. Don't leave me. Uh, or sometimes, sometimes there's tears accompanying that. And there's this fear of left behind. And I say I don't, I don't get it because it must be developmental because we don't joke like, you better come, we're going to leave you. you know, we, we don't do that to them. Uh, that got done to me, right? So it's a fair, fair use, works. But it makes you move faster. But we, we don't do that with them. And they have this fear of being left behind. And I think that's a real, tangible possibility for many here that will be on the outside looking in if we don't turn follow christ pursue hard after him hear his word and do it that the warning is that there will be those on the outside they will be eternally left behind eternally missing out eternally suffering forever and ever. That is a warning for you today. For the dogs, the sorcerers, which would be substance abuse in our context, dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, liars, 
There's a warning for those who do such things and practice such things. You will be eternally on the outside of this new city, this new heavens and new earth. The book closes with a prayer and an invitation, both summed up with one word, come. It's a prayer and it's an invitation. The spirit and the bride say, come. That's a prayer. It's a prayer from the church, the spirit addressed to Jesus. Come, come now. Come. Don't you want Jesus to come? I want him to come. I want him to come now. And I want you to I want to ask you, believers, is your life in a place that you would rejoice at his coming or shrink back at it? Here is a call to the perseverance of the saints, KBC. Kill sin and walk victorious in your life. Conquer until he comes. Many of you know I like The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. The main character, Christian, stops by the house of the interpreter before his journey begins to the celestial city. The interpreter shows him many wonderful and necessary things that Christian needs to know before he embarks on his journey. One of the things, one of the rooms, is it says this, that Christian is led to a beautiful palace where he sees a beautiful golden city that's splendid and, and there's high walls and the people on those walls are dressed in gold attire and it just looks beautiful and everybody wants to go into this beautiful palace, but many stand outside of it because they're scared. Why are they scared? Because the entrance to the palace is heavily guarded, heavily guarded by armed men. I'm going to pick up and quote now where he describes this, and I quote, At last, when every man started back for fear of the armed men, Christian saw a man of very stout countenance approach the gates, draw his sword, and put a helmet upon his head, and rush toward the door upon the armed men, who laid upon him with deadly force. But the man not at all discouraged, fell to cutting and hacking most fiercely. So, after he had received and given many wounds to those that attempted to keep him out, he cut his way through them all and pressed forward into the palace, at which there was a pleasant voice heard from those that were within, even those that walked on top of the walls of the palace, saying, Come in! Come in! Eternal glory you shall win! So he went in, and was clothed with such garments as they had. Then Christian smiled and said, I think verily, I know the meaning of this, close quote. KBC, do you see the meaning of this? Do you see what is trying to be communicated? I can sum it up in a word. Paul said it like this, through many trials and tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many trials and tribulations. I want to ask you here, are you suffering this morning? 
fear suffering in this fallen world system where there's injustice, there's corruption in governments, there are corruption of your body, chronic health issues, there are uh, sin in relationships that hurt and cause pain and damage, there's, there's death of, of anybody, of seniors, of middle-aged people, of babies. You're suffering. You feel the pain of your own sin. You feel the pain of spiritual warfare. Do not think it's abnormal. Through many trials and tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. What's he saying? He's saying this life is going to hurt. That's what he's saying. You want eternal glory? There will be pain on the journey. There was pain for Jesus. We don't get the pain-free life now. That's then. Now we must be like that soldier that Christian saw and hack and, and cut and be fierce and give blows and receive them and press on and finish. Paul told young Timothy, fight the good fight. Run the race. Take hold of eternal life, young Timothy, because you, KBC, shall reign forever and ever with Jesus. And before long, you will hear the same song. Come in, come in, eternal glory, you shall win. It's come for the church, conquer. But it's come for everybody. It ends with this gospel invitation to all people. Let him who hears says come. Let him who is thirsty come and take drink of the water of life without price. Let me ask you this. Have you been drinking from the stagnant waters of the world? The diluted pleasures of this life? It doesn't satisfy. I think you know that. You know deep in your soul it doesn't quench your thirst. It leaves you wanting something else, something better. Come this morning to Christ and take the water of life without price because Jesus, the better Joseph, the one who was rejected by his own family, his brothers who was sold out, is now exalted to the right hand of the Father and has made provision for all who would come to him. And unlike Joseph, the better Joseph offers provision without cost. Just come. Are you thirsty? Come. Are you hungry? Come. Do you need rest for your souls? Come. Let him who hears says, come and come today and take. The offer is out there. 2015, I began this trek through Revelation in the book of Genesis. For those of you who were here, there are many who were not. Genesis would take us a whole year. We went into Exodus and John, his gospel. We interlaced the two narratives together. Both of them are huge. We then went on to 1 John and Revelation, but we kicked off Genesis chapter 3 with the sermon called Into the Shadowlands. The curse begins. Into the Shadowlands. Now, I want to end it 
with the quote that I began it with in a very Revelation way. This comes from C.S. Lewis's book, The Last Battle. It is the last paragraph in the Chronicles of Narnia. It says this. It shows Aslan and the, the children. And I quote, And as he, that's Aslan, spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Close quote. Amen. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we truly do desire to enter the gates. We desire to see your face, to have your name written on our foreheads to be counted among those who worship you forever and ever. Father, help us now in this life to purify ourselves for that day. Help us to die to sin. Help us to take hold of the promises of the gospel, to wash our robes in the blood of the Lamb and find that you are true to your word. We ask that you would strengthen us, equip us for every good deed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.